Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible. If not, if you just listen carefully, I'll be reading it to you. It's quite a concentrated passage in the best sense of the word. It's full of, packed with truth, and uh, it's not complicated ultimately, but it's sort of densely packed with amazing uh, insights into the Christian faith. So I would like you to listen. So as I say, I'm giving a little bit of time for you to settle down and to find Ephesians 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. Paul is writing to the Christians in the Ephesian church, which was probably a huge church, by the way, by this time. Could have been many thousands of people. And it probably wasn't just the one church in Ephesus. They, they had links with uh, the area around that planted churches. Paul himself had been involved in that. And so it, it was, in fact, a letter that was then handed round, probably within the area around Asia Minor, where they were. So he is writing to Christians, but he's telling them, or reminding them and teaching them, what it means to be a Christian, and where they were before, and where they are now, if you like. So let's read from verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just pray. And then we're going to look at that passage and I'm going to talk out of it for a a little while with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the the joy that many of us have experienced this morning of listening to these testimonies and seeing such a range of people baptised as a testimony to their faith in you, Lord Jesus. I just pray that through the Holy Spirit you would open our eyes, open our ears to hear wonderful things from your word this morning. I pray, Lord, if there's those here who don't understand these things, there'll be clarity today. I pray for those of us who've already been baptized, already been Christians for a while. You just kindle our faith afresh, stir it up, Lord, like a fire when you just stir the embers and may it flare back into life as we think of our glorious and wonderful gospel. Help me, Lord, to convey these truths that are so awesome with simplicity and with the weight they deserve, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I love baptisms. As a pastor, as a church leader, I love them. And I found that true this morning as ever. I thought it was moving, most of them. 
Uh, all of them were moving, actually, to be honest. And it was such a range of people and types of people. And that is exactly what it is and what it can be and often is and should be, I suppose, when you look at the church and people who've come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Mixture of backgrounds, mixture of types and abilities, ages and men and women together. The Christian gospel is for everyone. There are phrases in this this passage which show the all-inclusive, all-encompassing nature. All of us at one time, he talks about. Like the rest. You'll get phrases like that. This is something that is applying to everyone, everywhere. Now, Neil did an excellent job in introducing it. So that helps me and it saves you a couple of minutes in my sermon, actually. Because I was just going to say, but Neil did it. We need to notice that baptism is about what it is to become a Christian. Just to remind you, it's a demonstration of a death, a burial and a resurrection. That is physically what it's a picture of. It's a picture of being associated with Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. It's a demonstration of being a Christian, being in Christ. And that's a phrase I'll come back to several times when I'm speaking with you. In fact, my title for this talk is Alive in Christ. And actually, the Christian is someone who is in Christ, in Jesus Christ. There's an unbreakable spiritual union. Actually, the real baptism is when you become a Christian, born again of the Holy Spirit, you are immersed in Christ. As Neil said, the word does mean to immerse or plunge into. You are immersed in Jesus Christ. The water baptism, which is very important and is biblical and is a way of demonstrating you've put your faith in Jesus, is in effect a picture of the spiritual reality that you are in Christ. You are baptised into Jesus Christ and this water demonstrates it very vividly And it's an experience you don't forget, especially if we are sensible enough to keep it cold. That obviously had an impact on people. I could watch their faces and that obviously made it more of a memory. So we'll perhaps put some ice cubes in next time. But so obviously you you notice something's happened to you. You go through it and it's a, it's a fairly hard thing to do. It's, uh, it's not an easy thing. And in some ways it's a vivid, I am in Jesus. And it reminds you that you belong to Him. Okay. Why is this important? that we are in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use these verses to look at something. Please bear with me if you're a visitor. If you're someone who's uh, sort of not a Christian, or not yet Christian, wouldn't see yourself, not very clear, yet maybe a bit like Kevin was two years ago, who was the last uh, candidate with his testimony. If you're just like that, just bear with me. This isn't an apology. I'm just telling you to bear with me. Because the gospel is not politically correct, but I think it is totally the truth. And I think it completely analyzes the problem of human, the human predicament. What is the real problem with human beings? I think it's all obvious to all of us that humanity is in a state. And really, it's pretty depressing. The media in our modern world only adds to that. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily true that the modern world is any worse than, say, the Middle Ages or something like that. But we're really very aware of the problems in our world we can sometimes feel it is very dark. That is not inappropriate. We can genuinely feel a darkness about it. You get the escalating economic problems and the the way they knock on, the extreme greed that is evident and the extreme poverty and exploitation. You get the hunger, the famines, the food shortages, the tribal warfare, the ethnic cleansing that goes on, called ethnic cleansing in Europe, 
tribal warfare perhaps in Africa and other uh, things elsewhere. The clashes between cultures and religions, often in bloodshed. The population growth and the in inability to seemingly properly deal with it. The spread of things like AIDS. The whole traffic in children, the sex slaves thing, traffic that you pick up, the sex trade, the terrorism, the war, the cruelty, the violence, on the big scale. But then on the mini scale, the, the stuff that goes on in the streets around us, the drug taking, this, the alcohol abuse, the uh, sort of uh, violence really, which is often associated with the domestic violence, street violence, associated with all those things. The disintegrating family life, which is... Again, perfectly obvious to most of us. The confused sexuality, which seems to be an increasing problem in our part of the world. Sexual promiscuity, pornography, and its availability through the internet. The, the sort of selfish, dishonest greed element, the, the, the greediness financially and the dishonesty that so often we come across. The fact that we hardly know who we can believe any longer from a public uh, uh, point of view, anybody we're listening to, it, it, it becomes difficult to trust anyone. There is, seems to be an absence of accepted moral guidelines. It does seem a very bleak picture. I believe it is myself. Mankind seems incapable of really organising his affairs and his sort of society in a way that is in any valid sense fair, just, humane, peaceful, tranquil, free, you know, it just seems not to work, whatever you try. Why? Well, the answer is because individual men and women across the planet are askew. They're off-centre. They're not as they should be. They're damaged. Each one of us is not as we should be. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, gives us one of the most powerful biblical analysis of the problem. It's powerful and it's very straight. I'll just read those first three verses again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Outside of Jesus Christ, all of us are dead, dominated and doomed. Now you ask a cheerful subject. It's a realistic subject. It's realism, not pessimism. We are dead, dominated and doomed. Dead, the Bible says, we are dead in our sins. We are all sinners, dead in our sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. What does it mean? What's this word? What's it mean, being a sinner? Well, actually, you only need to read the Bible and then know a little bit what it's saying to at least have the definition, if you like. That verse talks about transgressions and sins. And from the biblical point of view, and from God's point of view, from a true point of view, there are two ways in which you are a sinner, if you like. <laughs> you can transgress now, to transgress is to do something that God has commanded you not to do. To cross a forbidden territory or boundary, overstep the moral boundaries God has put in place. For example, to covet, to steal, to commit adultery, to lie, and of course other things, to murder. But some of them are much nearer to home. They're transgressions. Sins 
being precise in definition, are a failure to do something that God has commanded you to do. To miss the mark and fall far short of the standards that God has laid down for the creatures he's made, men and women. For example, to not honour and worship God. That's a sin. To not love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. To not love your neighbour as yourself. To not forgive people. (laughs) Things like that. They're sins. And so actually, I don't think any of us are not transgressors and sinners. It's pretty all-encompassing. And the two together make a very uh, powerful argument for saying that all of us fall short of the glory of God and are sinners. I suppose, broadly, you could have three views about humanity. Perhaps they are, by and large, ones that uh, certainly the first two would be in our, our culture a bit. You could say that people are basically healthy, that it's basically good and we're making progress all the time. Certainly to the end of the Victorian era and the Edwardian era, that would have been quite a common viewpoint. I think the First World War dealt it a tremendous blow, but I think a hundred years later, it's not quite such a popular view. That worldwide, people are basically fine, and it's all getting better and better. I think if you read your newspaper, you feel that is hopelessly unrealistic. The second view is that people are sick, if you like, using metaphorically. First one might they're healthy, second one is they're sick. So one view is that people are pretty healthy. Another view is that people are sick. They're not completely well, but they can be nursed back to health. You could give them the right schooling. You can put the right laws in place. And if you get it just right, they'll be better. They'll be okay. Society will work. That's probably the most popular view in one form or another. That's probably, in a very simple way, the basic view of our culture. Yeah, there's some problems. We can fix it. We get everything sorted out. People are fed properly, get enough money, get educated properly, and get a decent you know, health service and uh, all the rest of it. Okay, that may seem to have some sense to it, but actually, in the long term, it is unsatisfactory. In fact, I would argue it never works. Open your eyes, look around. Ultimately, it is unrealistic. It doesn't work. You can put people in all sorts of environments and they, and they can trash them if there's something wrong inside. It really doesn't work. It is a misdiagnosis. So the third diagnosis is we're dead. We're not healthy, we're not sick, we're dead. <laughs> now, spiritually dead. Obviously not physically. You could say the earth is the planet of the living dead. The zombies. All of us were zombies at one time. Might be a modern translation of Ephesians 2 verse 1. That we are spiritually dead. We are physically alive, of course. We have souls, we have creativity. But we are cut off from God and we are spiritually dead. Now that's very important diagnosis. I believe it's the true one and it's the biblical one. If you're wondering, what does Christianity teach? You hear a lot of nonsense sometimes through the media's filter. It's not always the fault of the preacher. But uh, actually, Christianity, in its clear biblical form, teaches this. That the problem is men and women are spiritually dead. Now, if you're dead, you can't be resuscitated. You need to be resurrected. 
We need an act of God. We can't make ourselves alive. A dead body cannot resurrect itself. Something has to come from outside and make us alive. Spiritually, we need God. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot put ourselves right. We can't fix ourselves. Well, the next word, we're dead, so we're dominated. They all sort of link together. We're dead, so we're dominated. Dominated by what? Dominated by the world, the flesh and the devil. It's all in these verses, particularly verses 2 and 3. Paul says, you followed the ways of the world. Because we haven't got the spiritual power and life in us, the godly life we should have, we are basically dominated by the world. Now, what's the Bible mean by the world? The world is human society organised without reference to God, not looking to God at all. How we try and fix ourselves as a society, as a people, the culture, if you like, might be another way of describing it. Now, in our natural state, we are totally drawn along by the culture and its values. We live for self. We live for the world's values. We live for pleasure. We live for power. We live, and and, and although there are certain things, we'll talk briefly about this in a moment, that might balance and curtail, essentially we go with the flow. And more than go with the flow, we say, that's the only way to live, isn't it? What's wrong with that? Live for yourself. Do it your way. I did it my way. Frank Sinatra's song is, I think, still the most popularly requested song at funerals. I did it my way. That the people want to hear that. Because they, isn't that the right way to do it? Isn't that it? Isn't that what it's about? Well, that is the world value. And it dominates us. But we're also dominated by a figure called here the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, that really means we're dominated by the devil. Again, not a popular idea today. You see, the Bible teaches there is an unseen realm, the kingdom of the air, a realm where good and evil collide, a realm where angels and demons are locked in spiritual warfare. It's not the whole deciding-making area, but it has an influence on human life. There is a malevolence around. There is a demonic force behind many of the attitudes and structures in society. There's someone messing it up on top of our own problems. And sometimes we're very conscious of it. We watch a film like The Exorcist or something and think, wow, that's scary and all the rest of it. I tell you, that sort of thing happens. That's not just fiction. There are demons. There are powers. And they feed on human rebellion and sin and they they operate in that area. So there's another dominating influence. And thirdly, it says here, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Sounds delightfully sort of slightly old-fashioned and grim, doesn't it? But it's actually a very, very important truth. We are dominated by what the Bible calls our sinful nature or our flesh. Now, what does that mean? That means human nature apart from God. That our our, our humanness actually dominates us. You say, well, isn't that okay? Well, it would be okay if we weren't spiritually dead. We are. So what that means is we're dominated by our bodily appetites, our lusts, our, 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 our strong desires to satisfy things. Now, they can be physical, very obviously, but they can be just internal, the need for pride, pride to be satisfied. You know, our thoughts, our, our, our mind, our soul, the need for us to be the centre of everything, our ego. All these things, we're trying to gratify them. Our bodies and our, our me, 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 me-ness. <laughs> and so these things dominate us because we're spiritually dead. And it says in verse 3, all of us live like this. All of us. It's a universal human condition. That is the Christian gospel. Like it or not, but I think it's wonderful and accurate, is that when you cut through 
all the cultures of the world, not to devalue them. There are all sorts of interesting things to explore. But the fundamental problem is this, that all of us are dead and dominated by our flesh, by the devil and by the world's values. It's a serious state of affairs. But there's another third part. In verse 3 it says, and were by nature objects of wrath, doomed. Now I can't hardly say it without a smile because it sounds such a funny word, old-fashioned, doesn't it? But actually it it just suits me because it begins with D. But actually it is a very serious truth. In actual fact it's the worst part of all of this diagnosis of the human condition. Because we are all under the pending judgment of a holy God. A God who made us and who in his holiness created us for his pleasure and us to find pleasure in him is deeply grieved by our sin and our compromise, the things we've been looking at. And for all the other problems we have, our biggest problem is with God. Fundamentally, we are out of kilter with God. Our sin has separated us from our Creator Father. And there's like a black cloud between us and Him. And the wrath of God is looming over men and women. The, the New Testament is very careful how it puts it, and it's very instructive to know that. It's not as though when we come to the judgment day, suddenly God will be sort of just having to sort out which of us go to heaven and hell and all that sort of thing. It's actually that we're already condemned. We need to be saved from the situation we're in, which is where I'm going to go in the next few minutes. We do need saving. For example, in John 3, I just read it to you, when, it, when Jesus is teaching, he says, whoever believes in the Son, that's himself of course, has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We are in a problem situation. We are doomed unless something happens to save us. In our natural state, all of us everywhere are dead, dominated and doomed. Now this view, as I said, sounds a bit pessimistic. I would believe it to be realistic. And I think when you understand it and fully explore it, it makes more sense to the world than many another explanation. And the whole point is, the Bible is saying, you really do need to be saved. (laughs) That is not just an interesting Victorian concept, be saved. You do need to be saved. There's something to be saved from. There is a need. And the answer comes wonderfully in verse 4. It doesn't come out as powerfully in the NIV as it does in some other English translations. Verse 4 starts, but God. That's how it should start. In the Greek, it starts with the words, but God. In older English translations, it starts with those three powerful English words, two, sorry, powerful English words of three letters, but God. And that is so important. That's the mess, but God. God is doing something about it, has done something about it, but God. That's the door to hope. That's the door from death to life. That's the door from domination to freedom. That's the door from being doomed to being saved. But God. Hallelujah. No one else could do it. We're dead in our sins. But God has done what only God could do. He has provided a way of escape. He has provided a way of salvation. Why has he done it? Well, if you've still got your Bible open, it's very easy to find it from verse 4 and then verse 7. It says because of his great love 
God who is rich in mercy. The good news is, despite the pending doom and the other things which are real and true, our holy God is also a God of mercy and love. And actually, that is an amazing fact, that the creator, the prime motivator, the one who made everything, is fundamentally a God of mercy and love, though a holy God. I do so thank God that he's like that. I mean, nobody made him like that, but that is, in his radiant character, what he is. So his love and his mercy drive him beyond, if you like, just the justice, just the holiness. That's there. That has to be dealt with. He has to balance his mercy and his holiness, but he's found a way of doing it. It says in verse 7, he's a God of grace and kindness. These are true of our God. Mercy, love, grace and kindness. And through these he has triumphed over the things that hold men and women and all of us in death and under judgment. Now how does he do it? He saves us by uniting us to Jesus Christ. That's where we're back to our baptism. We're in Christ if we're a Christian. This is a For me, it's my favourite way of describing what's a Christian. I'm not alone. The phrase in Christ is used over 200 times in the New Testament. It's a New Testament way of describing what it is to be a Christian, that you are in Christ, you're in Jesus Christ. It's a very biblical way of describing it. What does it mean? Well, in some mysterious way, we'll briefly refer to in a moment, by uniting us to Jesus Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sins. He took away my sins, he paid the penalty, he somehow severed the link between my sin and my state that I've been talking about. He broke it, he satisfied the law, he satisfied a holy God, he broke Satan's power in our lives through his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ was a man. He was God-man, he was God become a man, but he was a proper man. He was conceived as a tiny little seed, eggs, egg in, his, in, in Mary's uh, womb. That's why that tells us a lot about what real humanity is. Jesus came right from the first minutes of what conception is, right through to man. He was a real man. He wasn't somebody who zapped down or beamed me down, Scotty stuff, came down from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He was born a man. He was flesh and blood. He got tired, he got hungry, got hurt, upset, bled when they hit him. Jesus was a man, but he was a unique man. He was a sinless man. He was the second Adam. He was a real man, but he was a a break from the terrible chain of death, domination and doom that was around. But Jesus died on the cross for you and I. It was a real cross and a real event in history. And when he did that, he died for us. There was no sin of his own to die for. He He atoned for our sins, the Bible would say, and thereby reconciled us to God. Having died, he rose again in the power of an endless life. He triumphed over death and the devil. If we are to be saved, somehow God has to transfer, if you like, to us the effectiveness of what happened with Jesus. We have to share in what he did. He died for me. He rose for me. I died in him. I rise in him. My future is tied up in him. The salvation he objectively accomplished becomes subjectively real and in my life. 
That is the miracle of the new birth through the Holy Spirit. That's how we're saved. Talked about God as Father and Creator, which He is. Talk about God as Son, living amongst us, dying and rising again. Now God the Holy Spirit is the one that does the business that makes it subjectively real in your life and mine. You are born of the Spirit. You are united with the Lord. One Spirit with the Lord, as it teaches us in 1 Corinthians. A new creation on the inside. Our bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit. This is reality. You can be united with Christ. And it begins to become a subjective, changing reality in your life, now and for eternity. It is a real, living union. A spiritual union. The Bible uses a number of illustrations, but they're all very intimate. Sometimes almost awkward to understand, like the union between a man and a woman. is a, a picture in sexual union between a husband and wife. It's a picture of Christ's union with his people. But another one that Jesus gave is the vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches. It's like we become one with him and his sap flows through us. These are pictures of scripture to help us understand how truly we become one with him. It's a living spiritual union through the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus Christ has done, his death, his resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father in victory, reigning, becomes ours and applied to us. Everything Jesus ever did counts for everyone who is joined to him. Just hear that sentence. That is theologically accurate. Everything Jesus ever did counts for everyone who is joined to him, Jesus Christ. Amen? Once we were dead in our sins, dominated by the world, the flesh and the devil, doomed for hell, now we can be alive in Christ, destined for glory, with authority over sin, it does not have to have dominion over us, and dealing with the devil in a similar way, authority to deal with him, and we can live a new life. That is the message of the Gospel. And this wonderful salvation, this wonderful blessing, is available for anyone Whoever they are, whatever they've done, and whatever their background, there are no uh, exclusion groups. Anyone who wants the blessings of this great salvation may obtain them, how? By coming into Christ, or getting into Christ. So the big question is, how do I get into Christ? That is the question everybody on the planet ought to be asking. It would be my goal on the bigger scale, is that every human being of the six billion on the planet would be able to ask that question intelligently. How do I get saved? What must I do to be saved? How do I get into Jesus Christ? I don't want to turn them into an Englishman. I don't want to turn them into a European. I don't want to turn them into any cultural thing. I want every one of them to know that they can be in Christ. They can be whatever they are. You know, I don't know, pick me in the jungle, sort of... uh, I don't know, Arab trader in the Middle East. I don't, yeah, but they've got to be in Christ. <laughs> That's what I want. That's the question. You're in Adam. Do you want to be in Christ? Now, how do you get into Christ? Well, it's in the passage again. It's by faith. What? That's the only way. By faith. What, what faith? You know, people talk about faith quite a lot today. Faith in what? Just, just willing yourself in there, wishing yourself in there, you know, practicing before breakfast, trying to believe three impossible things. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. No, I'm not saying something silly. I'm saying something powerfully true. You put faith in the gospel message that I have just spent 25 minutes explaining to you. 
not because it's me. <laughs> you put faith in that truth. You can read it for yourself here in these verses. It's faith focused on a reality of what the Bible teaches, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sin, that he's our Saviour and Lord, that he rose again, that we, we can have a fresh start. We can come to know the living God through him. We need to know about it. That's why we need to go across the world explaining it. We need to agree with it and we need to act on it. That's what faith is. You know it, you agree with it, you act on it. That's real faith. You could know it. That's not faith. You could agree with it. Yep, oh, that sounds pretty good. That's not faith. You act on it. You know it, you agree with it and you act on it. That is faith. And it's not faith till you've got the three bits operating. That you say, yeah, this is for me. Now, you need to go through the know it and believe it stage. You do, uh, you do need to. You need to have time to know it. Sometimes you need time to agree with it. But in the end, you've got to commit yourself to it, that if, uh, if it's to be real faith. What do you commit yourself to? Will you believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was? You believe that when God says he died for your sin, that's possible and that's gloriously, wonderfully true. You say you believe about his work on the cross and his resurrection. You then receive him, as it were, into your life. You trust him. Say, God, help me. I trust in Jesus Christ. I receive him as my Lord and my Saviour. You can't bargain for salvation. You can't earn it. There's no way. It has to be received as a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. Remember, we're dead spiritually. It's like, I need God's help. I receive God's help. That is it, really, in its wonderful, glorious simplicity. But of course, once you do that, something amazing happens. You are made alive in Christ. You are born again. The Holy Spirit says, right, I can do it. In. <laughs> and you are made alive. Now, that is the reality of our Christian experience when we become a Christian. Union with Christ is obtained by faith in the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And that process, which can be unique for every individual, sometimes takes a long time till you're really clear. Sometimes people instantly see it. There's no rules about it at all. But in the end, like the baptism candidates, one way or another, you need to say, I believe in Jesus. He's the Lord of my life. He's my saviour. He's whom I'm trusting for the future. And uh, I want to testify to that. And the Bible way of testifying is what we observed uh, a half an hour or 40 minutes ago. It's to be baptised. It's to go into that water and say, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. All my old life is washed away. It's buried in, in the pool, if you like, symbolically. Buried with Jesus. Gone. All my sin, all my failure, all my hang-ups, they're gone. I now live for Jesus Christ. I now live in the power of a new life. That's what those people were demonstrating in their baptism. It's a way of saying, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. So watching a baptism, as many of you have done this morning, most of you not for the first time, but some of you may be, but is an ideal opportunity for you to think about yourself. All of us. All of us. And I do mean all of us. You know, do I understand this and do I live like this, Christian friend? Do you live in the light of your baptism? Do you live free from the death, domination and doom that was once yours? Do you live in the good things that are in this Ephesian passage? One or two verses I didn't even refer to this morning, but for Christians are challenging. Verse 10, do you live with doing the good works for which you've been created in Christ Jesus and God's prepared for you? Do you live as what you are, someone in Christ? 
Or, or do you live in a sort of half world? What a tragedy that is. It's still possible. But you may not be a Christian this morning. That's fine. That's where we all started. Not in Christ. You're outside of Christ. Then it's a time to think about it. Please think about it. There are some very helpful tools to do that today across many churches in the UK. There will be an Alpha course. If you don't come from Winchester, you need to look for something called an Alpha course on a church notice board. be well worth going on it. It'll be about ten weeks and it will explain to you much more carefully than I have these sort of truths, but it gives you opportunity to ask questions, opportunity to argue your point, an opportunity to listen, and you don't have to join or do anything at the end. It really is a seeker's sort of thing. We do an Alpha course here. One started on Tuesday last week, but missing the first one is not a problem. That would have been an introductory night. From this Tuesday onwards, there'll be another, whatever it is, nine, and they are very, very good opportunities to think about these things. If you would like to go on our Alpha course, you would be more than welcome on Tuesday. You get a lovely meal cooked uh, on, on Tuesday, 7.30 in this building, and then you have a chance to discuss things, bring questions, listen to a talk, and really and truly, I can honestly say at the end, you, it's up to you whether you want to come into Christ or not. I hope and pray you do. But at least you have a chance to understand it more. Have we got in the house Rob or Nell Golding? And could they stand up if they're here? Hallelujah. Have we got Andy Reid? Could he stand up? He was the bass player. I suspect he might not. And Jane Reid, I know, is on children. Okay, so it's only Rob and Nell at the moment. Rob and Nell are leading our current Alpha course. If you would like to go on our Alpha course, because it's started, it's a little urgent, but if you're able to come this Tuesday or said, I couldn't do this Tuesday, I could do the next one, even if you can only come to a few of them, Go and see Rob and Nell. I mean, there will be another Alpha course, and you might say, I'd rather start on that one and get the whole deal. But they're the ones to talk to. There they are, look. Beautiful young couple. Wonderful couple. Okay, don't miss them, please. Lurk about somewhere prominently. Probably should have some grotesquely coloured t-shirt on, but you haven't. But there they are. And, and bless, bless them, they're, they're, they're a wonderful couple leading out Alpha Course. I'm, I'm actually quite serious, of course, as you realise. These are, are serious issues, and the whole point of the Alpha Course is to help people come to know who Jesus is. Because I don't want you to be squeezed into some mould, to say, well, I don't want to be a sort of goody-goody, churchy type. And you might have all sorts of caricatures of what I'm talking about. Forget all that. You need to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. You need to know him. You may end up worshipping in a different church because you might even live somewhere else. You need to know Jesus. <laughs> now, if you end up with us because you live locally, praise the Lord, we'll love you and accept you and baptise you, all the stuff that goes on today. But the bottom line is you need to know Jesus. We all need Jesus. All of us, as it says in the verse. Thank you for listening. Please stand. Let's stand together. I'll ask the musicians to come up and play one more song, but I'm going to pray before we do that.